0: We've all met them. We've all run into them in the course of our travels through this world. We've all encountered the unbreakable ones. They are not perfect people. They are not invulnerable. They have struggles and pains like the rest of us do. But somehow, the pains and pressures that tear other people apart Just don't seem to get to them, to break them down in anything like the way that happens to others. They seem to move through this world with a remarkable resilience, with an unusual confidence, with an uncanny kind of hope. And as you get to know these people, you discover this is not an act, it's not an accident. It isn't just genetics at work here. You find as you get to know these folks, there's a reason that these people are this way. Like that first band of Christ followers whom God used to revolutionize an entire civilization. These exceptional people are the way they are because they have been part of an extraordinary kind of community that God has used... To forge in them this amazing kind of strength. Several weeks ago, I was invited to a breakfast in downtown Chicago and met somebody that illustrates what I'm talking about in a very vivid way. Now, the man I met, a fellow by the name of Meb was not on the surface particularly impressive to look at, okay? He stood about five foot seven inches tall. He, he had a, a bald head that sat atop a, a, a wiry frame. He couldn't have been more than about 130 pounds, dripping wet. But as I got closer to him and began to talk with him, I could see this light in his eyes And this steely grace in his presence that clued me in to the fact that he might be one of them, one of the unbreakable ones. Meb, I subsequently learned, was born in Eritrea. A tiny state that is located on the eastern horn of Africa that once belonged to Ethiopia, that's near the Sudan and Somalia. And as you may know, if you read the news and follow, Uh, foreign affairs at all, Eritrea is a place that has been beset for generations, infamous in fact, for its violation of human rights and its persecution of religious minorities. It's a land that has been ravaged by tribal and civil wars for generations. And one of Meb's earliest memories in life is of being asked to come clean up the body parts of another boy of his own age who had mistaken a a landmine for a child's toy. There were days when Meb was so desperately hungry, he says, that he ate moistened dirt just hoping to suck some sustenance out of the soil. For these reasons and more, Meb's family fled Eritrea when Meb was just 12 years old. They, they, they traveled more than 50 miles a day on foot. They, they, they traveled through incredibly rough terrain. His pregnant mom carrying another one of his siblings on her hip. His dad shepherding the family through this constant gauntlet trying to evade military patrols and outlaws and bandits and literally wild animals that would tear their flesh off their bones and they finally made it to the Sudan which amazingly was a much nicer place to live than the place they'd come from and then eventually they made their way to Italy and finally on here to the United States of America now life here in America, was no party for Meb's family either. Meb's mom and dad had 11 kids that they needed to somehow clothe and, and shelter and feed. They faced language and cultural barriers. They had huge economic uh, hurdles and health challenges. The pressure of their life brought on all the same kinds of challenges and squabbles that I think probably afflict your family and, and my family in various ways. As I said, they were not close to being the perfect family. But, in two important senses that I want to reflect on with you today, there was a chord. That connected Meb's family and gave them a remarkable kind of resilience. Many, many years ago, King Solomon of Israel was approaching the end of his life. And Solomon, maybe because he was reaching that time when one sees things a bit more clearly than one has earlier in the journey. He had lived long enough to figure out a few things the hard way. And he, I think, was determined that he did not want all of those who followed him to make all of the same mistakes he had. And he wanted to pass on something that could be of help to them. And, and, and so in the fourth chapter of his memoirs, the book we call Ecclesiastes, the famous wise man describes seeing a person who had tried to live his life mostly on his own. Maybe maybe Solomon was being autobiographical there. Maybe this was a coy way of just saying, hey, this is my story. This guy had made a great deal of money. He had a lot of influence in life. But somehow, all of those riches and resources had not brought him the kind of satisfaction that he wanted in life. And Solomon goes on to imply that the reason that this was so is because this man just did not have a set of long-term intimate relationships with whom to share his life. There was no band of brothers, in other words. There was no ya-ya sisterhood. There was no a circle of really deep confidence and intimates in his experience. There was no great group that could restrain him from the worst impulses of his life or help lift him up and strengthen him during the tough passages of his life. He had no real partners with whom he was building or sharing his life. This is the reality of this man's story. He had a lot of acquaintances, casual acquaintances, he had many, many sort of, sort of relationships, but it was a, a crowded solitude in a sense. I wonder how many of us go through our lives this way too. I wonder how many of us find ourselves sitting next to people in church, uh, in the marketplace, at our home, We labor next to people in the workplace or at our school. We live next to them in our neighborhoods or we walk next to them at the store. But our lives are not really entwined with these people. You know what I mean? They just bounce off these people. They just brush by these people. Our lives are not bound up in a single cord with these people. And our life can become one of mainly crowded solitude. As Solomon observes, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, says Solomon, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And then Solomon goes one step further here, and he says, A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I want you to say that with me, if you would. Repeat that verse of Scripture, commit it to memory. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. No, it's not quickly broken. Maybe because Meb's family was from one of those places on planet Earth where it's not your resources, it's your relationships that help you get by. Maybe that's why they got this idea Solomon is describing earlier than many other people do. They knew that they could not control a lot of things in their world. They were at the mercy of all kinds of forces. But there was one thing they could control. Meb's family understood that they could always control how they answered this question. To whom am I committed in this life? With whom will I do my life? Who am I really committed to? Who's going to be able to count on me no matter what comes next? Who's going to know that I'm going to show up again this week, just like last week? Who's going to know that they can call me in the middle of the night no matter what? That I'll be at their bedside in the hospital when those days come? That I will love them enough to tell them the truth that nobody else is going to tell them? That even if they mess up really badly... I will be there for them. Meb's family made a commitment like this to one another. They worked really, really hard, as I subsequently discovered, at staying entwined with one another. They paid attention. They made changes. When the cord of their connection with one another started to fray, and who, in what family, does it not fray sometimes? They would not let life separate them under any circumstances because they knew that whether it was in the jungles of Eritrea or in the sands of the Sudan or in the hard life of the cities of America, they were so much stronger together, so much better together than when they were apart. And that family became a cord that could not quickly be broken. Some time ago, Mike Murphy, one of the pastors of our church, introduced me to the results of a, of a landmark study several years back in human development. The study was mounted by two professors, one at the University of Alabama, the other at the University of, Alabama, of, of Nebraska, and these two professors, Nick Stinnett and John Dufresne, had been trying to answer a question. What Stinnett and Dufresne were curious about is why some families seem able to survive and even thrive amidst the huge pressures of life, amidst the crushing crises of life, when some other families just don't. Why do these certain families seem to flourish? Stinnett and Dufresne identified Six factors that mark the life of these more resilient families. Though, though I might go on to underline that these characteristics can be applied to unusually strong groups of many kinds. It doesn't have to be just the people living in the household together. The first factor I've already touched on, I suppose, it's that these resilient families displayed an unusual degree of commitment to one another. Right? They were all in for one another. They were going to hang together no matter what. The second factor that the researchers found was that these family groups were unusually good at encouraging each other. They would find something about the other worthy of celebration and appreciation and with great regularity, they lifted people up within their circle. Thirdly, they worked very hard at clear communication with one another. They, they, they took time and energy to really be transparent, to work through difficulties. They worked at their communication arts. Fourthly, they spent a generous amount of time together when compared to the, to the other groups. They, they were... They they, they may not do it every single day, but when they got together, they invested deeply and spent a lot of time together. Fifthly, they engaged in God seeking practices of one kind or another. They had spiritual rhythms, uh, disciplines that were part of what they did together as, as a group. And finally, they embraced suffering, they embraced trials and tribulations as opportunities. Right? They didn't just get angry and withdraw and shake their fist at heaven. They saw these times of difficulty as opportunities to grow closer to one another and to God himself. Now, I recognize we could spend an entire week on each and every one of those particular factors. And guess what? We're going to. Because this is going to frame our whole fall series. These next weeks, we're going to look individually at each of these important ideas and practices. And it's really worth examining them, I think, because these six strands, as they intertwine in the life of a group, form the cord of a kind of transforming community, the kind of community the Bible describes as the best context for human growth and transformation so what i'm trying to say to you is if you are part of a literal family and how many of us are part of literal families we live in a house with other people raise your hand right you are okay even if you're not if you if you're seeking just to Strengthen the quality of what happens to be the circle of your closest friends. That's your family. You've got a great circle of friends, and you want to strengthen the quality of the connections there. Or if you're hoping to deepen the life of your small group, you've got a group of folks that you get together with for for coffee and to study and to pray, and you're just looking for a way to make that an even better and transforming experience. Or you are out there in the workforce, and you want to revitalize your work group. Right, you want to be an influence in your work group that brings the best out of that circle, then learning about these six strands of community we're going to talk about and weaving these more intentionally into your regular practice when you're with that group will be transformative for you. I mean, it will really make a difference. It's not only going to make your group more unbreakable, it's going to make the people that are influenced by the life of that group far more resilient than they could ever possibly be otherwise. It's going to enable them to stand strong, at least stronger in the face of life's pressures in the way that all of us want to be strong and resilient. How incredibly true that proved, how incredibly true that it proved in the life of Meb, the man from Eritrea that I met a few weeks ago. I wish I had time to describe all of the ways that those six strands of community characterized his family's life. They did. It was just amazing. It's not surprising, I suppose, however, because Meb's family was devoted to following the way of Jesus. This was a very committed Christian family. And, and what a difference it made, not just in their family coherence, but in the quality of people that that group produced. I mean, think again of those kids with me, if you would. Right? Those 11 kids. Growing up in the warlands of Eritrea. They come from this culture of almost constant abuse and deprivation. They enter this country with nothing. In fact, the little they had was lost by the airlines when they arrived. They do not know the language, right? The first year they spend with with walking around with a dictionary, uh, just trying to figure out how this new country speaks. All they have is the values of Christian community at the center of their life. All they have is God. All they have is one another, and that proves more than enough what a combination (laughs) those three strands right Christian conviction God one another proves to be amazingly all of Meb's siblings not only made it in this country they went on to college all 11 of those kids went on to college and they didn't just go on to college those kids from the badlands of Eritrea They became doctors, lawyers, engineers, MBAs, influencers in all kinds of different walks of life, amazing contributors to the American culture now, all 11 of them. I found out, in fact, that Meb is actually considered the academic slacker in the group. All he could do was get into UCLA, where my son's going in just a few hours. Um, But Meb had a variety of gifts. And his family saw them and nurtured them. As a college student, Meb was named to the All-America team in track and field. He won the NCAA championship in the 5K and the 10K distances four times. He took home a silver medal in the 2004 Summer Olympics. He finished first in the New York City Marathon in 2009. And then, on April the 21st of 2014, after fighting back from a broken hip and a serious knee injury, after being told that Nike would no longer sponsor him because he was too old and too broken down, not competitive enough, after seeing that his own body, that a human body, could be torn apart in a race as easily as when handling a landmine, after watching Boston... Meb Koflizigi went to the starting line of the Boston Marathon two weeks shy of his 39th birthday. To the absolute shock of all of the commentators, maybe you saw it yourself, at 18 miles into the 26-mile race, the old man from Eritrea had an 81-second lead on Wilson Chabet, the Kenyan All-Star. But the Kenyan's legs were 10 years younger, and he was closing the gap fast. By mile 24, Chibet had cut the lead to eight seconds and then to six seconds, and observers were noticing that Meb's gait had gotten extremely choppy and that his face was grimaced with pain. And then as he came down the final stretch of that race on Boylston Street, the site of last year's bombings, Meb began crossing himself several times, the sign of the cross as he ran, and as if somehow accessing through that simple ritual a power from beyond himself, a strength from beyond himself, a resilience from beyond himself, he began stride by stride to separate himself from the Kenyan he now left behind. And moments later, Meb of the Kaflezigi family, Meb of the UCLA Bruins, Meb of the Boston Strong, Meb of the United States of America, Meb of the Church of Jesus Christ, crossed the line first, The first American to win that race in more than 30 years. Under the most severe stress, over the longest distance, Meb had proven unbreakable. But it wasn't because he was just naturally invulnerable. It wasn't because he was just so naturally tough. It was because he had a family. He had a team. He had a set of running partners. He had a group. He had a true spiritual community that helped to make him this way. And I just could not help but ask him, what were you thinking? What were you thinking as you came down Boylston Street? Because your body's racked with pain. And I've been there. I've run those marathons. You're in agony. Every molecule is shouting to you, stop the insanity. What were you thinking, Meb? What were you telling yourself as you came down that final stretch? And I thought he might say something like this. I was thinking, just hang on, Meb. You trained hard for this. You've worked a lot of hours for this. Meb, think of the endorsement contracts. Think of stuffing it in Nike's face. Right? Think think of of the glory of victory that's coming your way. But what Meb said to me was, I was thinking I must do this for my family. For my family. Who is your family? Who is it? Who's the group? Who's the team? Who's the circle of of community to whom you will make a commitment like that? What's the spiritual community? Maybe there's more than one that will be the cord into which you entwine yourselves in the days to come and with whom you purposely start weaving those six strands that lead to this amazingly beautiful and resilient kind of life. Please. Figure that out for yourself, okay? If we can help here at the church to help you discern who those people might be, let us know. Figure that out because God's plan is to make that cord and the other people who live in it with you nearly unbreakable. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for whatever taste of this kind of experience we've already had in life. We thank you for those individuals and groups that have made that kind of a commitment to us. But if there is, for any of us, Lord, just a little bit too much of that kind of crowded solitude, that strange, clamoring loneliness... Help us, Lord, to find the cord, to find a circle of people to whom we can make this kind of commitment and weave those strands of transforming community. Because we believe, Lord, that just as you did once long ago with a small band of believers who bound themselves inextricably to you, your scriptures, and to one another, we believe that it is through the power of this kind of unbreakable circle that you will still change this world through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.